Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. This week, we have CNN political analyst, senior editor from The Atlantic, Ron Brownstein. Doesn't get any better than that when you want to talk about American politics. He's going to help us sort out what's going to happen in 2021. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. We love those questions. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes, and we thank them for supporting uh, this program. It really helps to make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, uh, there's really a lot to talk about. The Electoral College formally um, said Biden won the election. We've known that for six weeks. Vaccines are starting. Uh, Biden's making most of his appointments. And only five more weeks with Trump that still scares me. Where do you want to start? Uh, probably where we've got Ron Brownstein on, uh, it's just Georgia. It's Georgia's on my mind. And the the reason I say that is, uh, you and I both agree that the, the ramifications of Georgia are, are enormous one way or the other. And it, it can't be overstated. And again, I, I don't know what the Democrats' chances are in Georgia, but I'm pretty confident that they're better than they were a month ago. And it's hard to look at the early voting numbers, which I don't know how important they are, but to the extent they mean anything, they're actually very encouraging. Uh, and there's a, you know, some, po- some polling showing that uh, Democratic enthusiasm may be running uh, higher than Republican enthusiasm, which that could that, that would spell a difference if that turns out to be true due to process of this election. I think we've started the early vote and it'll go through uh, December 31st. Uh, in the general election, in the November election, 26% voted absentee, 54 early, and 20 on election day. And uh, Trump did very well over the 20% on election day. I don't know if those numbers are going to hold up uh, in, in this round. There's certainly going to be fewer people at a vote, but how much and how much of each party, we do not know. And uh, it's just going to be a, a nail biter down the end. And, you know, it's the, the, the only question I have, I, I'm, I'm beginning to think, I'd ask you to respond, is that Trump wants the Republicans to lose. If you look at his tweets and his general demeanor, he has, the idea that he cares if Kelly and David win this election is is stupid. He has never cared about anything but himself in his entire life, and I think that's the case yeah, here. Well, yeah, yeah, well, of course, that's the only person he's cared about that. And we'll, we'll get into some more of those particulars with Ron Brownstein, who I know is watching it very carefully. Right. Um, I, I just want to pick up on one thing you said, the stake, the stakes are even bigger than people imagine. I had someone say, yeah, the stakes are big, but it's, you know, a vote or two in the Senate. People forget it's the Senate majority leader that sets the agenda that decides what gets to the floor. 
that makes decisions that uh, are, are, are will be profoundly different under Schumer. The votes will still be quite difficult. You're not going to enact any left-wing stuff. But having control of that agenda, being Senate Majority Leader versus Senate Minority Leader, uh, you know, you could have, if you were around, you could ask Lyndon Johnson. So it is a big effing deal. Um, James, I, I want to go, I want to pick up more though on what you said about Trump. Uh, and I, I think it's, um, I'll get in the holiday spirit next week, but I, I tell you what I am sick and tired of. I'm sick and tired of Republicans say, Hey, it was no big deal. The system worked. The courts did their job. McConnell acknowledged this week that Biden won. No harm, no foul. Well, there was a lot of foul. There was a lot of damage. The courts ruled against an absurdly, absurd proposition to throw out millions of ballots they didn't like because they voted the wrong way. Uh, no no lawyer took that seriously. It was a clown show with Rudy, Joe DeGeneman, Sidney Powell, and yes, the Supreme Court and others did the right thing. But I, I don't. I don't think you say this was a wonderful thing because they did the obvious. They did what they should have done. Uh, it was quite clear. I mean, you don't say people are great because they pay their taxes. You're supposed to. Kid did your homework, and you know, for McConnell to say he did it this week, seventy five percent of Republicans still think this was a fraudulent election. If these guys had been honest in the first place, if Mitch McConnell had put country ahead of his petty partisan interests, worried about Georgia back in November the fifth, November the sixth, or seventh. I think it would have made a big difference on that 75% if he was joined by others. And I think they've now paved the way for this to become routine in the future if you don't like the outlook. And I'll just pick up on one more Republican thing. Brett Stevens wrote a piece in the in the uh, New York Times saying, yeah, Trump did a lot of bad things, but let's not exaggerate it. The COVID-19 wasn't that great, but Italy and Spain have higher death rates. We have one of the great public health systems in the world. I don't want to be compared to Italy and Spain. If we had done as well as Germany and Canada, there would have been 100 to 150,000 fewer Americans die. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not celebrating that it could have been worse. Uh, I'm glad it's going to be over. But let's not say that this was uh, really no harm, no foul. There was a lot of foul. Oh, God. I mean, what about failing to buy 100 million to 500 million vials of the vaccine? I mean, how, how negligent can you be? I mean, it, it, it forget everything else, and the the the, the White House became a, a COVID hotspot. Uh, I, I mean, I you, you know, guys like like Brett Stevens, they they, you know, of course, he's stuck with trying to have to defend, you know, some of Trump's stuff, and you know, but on the other hand, they, there's no other hand with him. I, I, if you can say that they allocated $10 billion for vaccine research, fine. I, I mean, wow. That, that you can give them credit for that, that they didn't stop it, which is kind of amazing. The fact that he didn't buy, you know, somewhere between 100 million and 500 million bowels of that vaccine is, a, is in, in, a, in a country with probably less than 300 million people o o over the age of 18 is utterly absurd it's staggering but you know somebody's got to figure something different to say so i guess brett stevens has to do that and you were you you, you would you agree that it's absurd to give mitch mcconnell credit for finally saying that biden won uh on you know december the 14th 
yes, and it's absurd to give the Supreme Court credit for unanimously rejecting something you you couldn't even call a, a, a lawsuit. All right, that that Texas wanted to invalidate the votes in Georgia, Michigan, and where else was Wisconsin or something. I mean, you you don't get credit for that. All right, if you're a lawyer and, and your client got rear-ended by a solvent trucking firm, you don't get credit for getting the money. That, I mean, it, 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 we're giving credit to people. We go, oh, my God, a Trump judge said there was no evidence. Uh, you know, yeah, they didn't make any hard choices here. These were not difficult cases. These didn't require the application of fact to law. They were all crazy. They were just nuts. And, you know, and I, I guess the observation we'd make is, is face it, we all had like something, well, at least they, 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 they admitted that they lost, uh, you know, a month and a half after the election. I mean, it, it, the, the, the bar has become, the expectations in this country, have, that's one of the things that Trump has done. We have no expectation of each other at all. And, and that, this is evidence of that. Yeah. I completely agree. And I'm, I'm going to stay in this, in this sour frame just for a bit. And next week is going to be different, James. Next week, we're going to have uh, Mary Madeline and Judy Woodruff making fun of us. So it'll be very, very light. But, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm sour a little bit about the Democrats, too, particularly the interest groups. And a guy who should know better, who I'm sure you know, Mark Morial, the former mayor of New Orleans, head of the Urban League, Said, wait a minute, you know, Biden's not doing enough. Appointing blacks in diversity, this is not 1976 or 92 or 2008. No, it's not. Joe Biden hasn't acted that way. He has made really superb appointments, not only diverse, uh, which they should be, but they are really good appointments. And I think all these interest groups focusing on this person and that person is doing a great, great disservice. And the other you know, point I would make here is that they have already have named two members of the House to administration post. Uh, uh, Cedric Richardson of the White House, Marsha Fudge for HUD. And now there's a great pressure to name this woman from the Mexico interior sector. She may be very qualified. She may be a great choice. Nancy Pelosi cannot afford to lose any more people. Pretty soon Republicans will be in the majority. She only has a majority of four or five. What in God's name are they thinking? Look, I, last night I said on, on television, it, people in Washington of is who is obsessed with who's at the table. The rest of the country is obsessed with what's on the table. So it's the saddest story I've heard. A friend of mine was telling me a, a story about a guy that's been a Santa Claus for 30 years. Do you know what the number one thing that children are asking Santa for this year? Food. Food. You, you want to ruin your holidays? Think about a hungry child. They're not asking for a tricycle. They're hungry. And and if you know if everybody doesn't get the exact appointment and you know if they don't shuffle it around, I bet you they have spent an enormous amount of time trying to figure out how to parse this out where exactly you have this and that. And I, I mean, I can't say in one sense I blame them, but you know what? Two thirds of the Democrats voted for Joe Biden. 80 million people voted for him. Stand back. Give the man some space. 
All right. He, he's going to he would never not appoint a diverse cabinet or make diverse appointments across the whole spectrum of America. He just wouldn't do that. He is entitled. We're acting like we're, we're having three percent growth. And, 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 and running budget surpluses or something. We're in trouble. People need to act like it. So it's just it's where we are. Well, he is, and and I mean, he's he has has a so far much more. You know, he's appointed more, made more diverse appointments than Clinton or Obama. Uh, and but the the point that the kind of two narratives that could come out of that. One would be he has appointed a lot of people of color. Uh, it's a very diverse cabinet, and they're really high caliber. They're people like Cecilia Rouse, the chair of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors. You couldn't have picked a better person for that. That's one narrative that comes out of it that, that celebrates this kind of excellence and diversity. The other narrative is, you know what? They got a quota system of sorts. They're really going to kind of pick X percentage. That's a bad narrative. And they're doing the first, and they ought to emphasize that, and Democrats and interest groups ought to get on board on that. So it worries me. It, it, it worries me. It, it, it worries me a little bit too, and it also like I, I actually at some point I wish Biden would say, you know, stand back. We got real work to do here. It, you know, it's all in this interest groups, and they, 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 you know, they can't have this person and the, the former energy. I'm by the way, Governor Granholm. Wow, congratulations, my dear friend, my my comrade in arms, my one of the the, the most talented, nicest people I've ever known in my entire life is going to be energy secretary. And, and I'm glad, but the, 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 the environmental groups uh, blackballed the, the guy that Obama had, the PhD. I mean, and maybe that's thing. The people didn't want, they, you know, they blackballed Rom from, from being transportation secretary. All right. You know, well, some of the veterans groups that I admire are complaining about Dennis McDonough. There is no more decent, capable person who will take care of, de- of veterans than Dennis McDonough. That is a terrific appointment. And you're right. They ought to, they ought to just back off. But, James, it's a, it's a party-wide issue. It's not just the interest groups. I saw where uh, AOC, uh, Alexandra Octavia Cortez today said, we got to find new leaders. We got to, you know, we got to replace Schumer and Pelosi. We need some of our people. What world is she living in? I mean, what does she think? Where does she think American voters are? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. It's so, it's so profoundly disappointing. First of all, ma'am, you didn't win anything. You didn't, we didn't win, we didn't do, other than Joe Biden, the Democrats didn't do very well. These people are acting like that that we control stuff. We don't. And and a large reason that we don't is a lot of this stuff that these leftists have come up with. Look, at you'll see something really stupid. This is why Democrats will break through. I know it's a minor thing. San Francisco, in the school district, in the middle of a pandemic and an economic crisis in San Francisco, thinks it's smart to rename Abraham Lincoln High School. Well, I could tell you that was all over. That's all over Fox. That's all over Drudge. That's all over everything. Now, is it that big of a deal, James? Well, probably not. I mean, but it just illustrates to people 
how goddamn clueless we are. I, I, I mean, I don't think there's a there's a thousand school districts that have an Abraham Lincoln High School. There's a Lincoln Parish, Louisiana. There's a Lincoln. I mean, it's just couldn't somebody say, let's table that resolution and have a study committee, or just standard deferral bullshit that they do. It, it just it, it it's just something that that the Democrats can't escape from is some of this leftist silliness. Well, you know, I am. Um, we're going to start a new feature uh, this week. Uh, each of us, and we may have shot our wad uh, already we in the show, but each of us is going to have the outrage of the week. Now, this is something beyond the usual bad stuff. It's going to be hard if it were, after what we've just been through. We're stealing it. My old CNN show was an idea coined by the late Robert Novak. With Trump leaving 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, it may be more challenging. But, James, let me let me kick it off. My outrage this week is Senator Ted Cruz. And I'll tell you why. He claims to be a brilliant lawyer, former Supreme Court clerk. But he wanted to argue that a name Texas lawsuit to throw out the votes in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania and in Georgia and in Arizona. It was so absurd, the high court summarily rejected it. But Cruz said, I can argue that case. Politically, he's a Trump sycophant. Okay, a lot of Republicans are Trump sycophant, right? But unlike the others, Trump said several years ago that Cruz's wife was ugly and threatened to reveal sordid stories about her. I mean, he said it about Cruz's wife, and he suggested that Cruz's daddy was complicit in the assassination of JFK. I mean, you know, it's fine the how he votes. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying he's a man who puts ambition ahead of character and family. And I guess it was best captured by Barack Obama when he said there was a, when there was a Supreme Court vacancy. Uh, and he said, if I appointed Ted Cruz, I could then have eight other appointments because all the others would leave. Ted Cruz is my first outrage. Well, he's very worthy of it. And, and I love this because this is the very part of Texas coach. He, he said something bad about my daddy, my papi, my mom. I'll, 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 I'll fuck you up good. Don't tell you. And my hua. You, you, you insult my hua. You better step outside. Right? Insults his daddy. Insults his wife. I mean, insults the way his wife looks. And this guy is just a whimpering lapdog. I mean, that, there's not a single thing of that that remote, remotely reflects Texas culture. And, and, and you're, it, it, it is a, a worthy outrage. And, you know, time and time again, you know, one, one thing Trump has done is he's exposed and humiliated these, these people in a way that no one else could possibly do it. I mean, they've lost any sense. I'm, I'm going to keep my San Francisco thing as my outrage. And not that it's that, that big was of a great deal, one. but it, it's, it's just an example of the unnecessary stuff that, that they do that, that radiates out to the country. It just, it, it's so, you know, they, they could have they had a seminar on Abraham Lincoln. They could have brought people in. And, you know, in of course, you know, Grant said something anti-Semitic in Memphis one time. So we got, I guess we can't have Grant's tomb anymore. I, I, I mean, and, and to some extent, but even when they say, you know, they're going to come after George Washington next, that that's not that's that that's not without something. We just don't we we don't need when there's massive food insecurity. We don't need to debate Abraham Lincoln right now. Right. 
I agree. You know, it, it, it's really important for people to feel good and feel good about themselves, and it's particularly important during these times. And unbeknownst to most people and to me until I think a week ago, there, there's a really good service that can really help people who are struggling mentally. Yeah, James, you're right. Uh, it, it's better help. It's spelled H-E-L-P. It's a worldwide professional counseling service done securely online with a broad range of expertise available that you might not find locally. All of us say, how you doing? Well, you know, we're doing not that great. It sucks. It's a really lousy time. And then you think, my God, look at what some people are going through. I mean, look at what some people are going through with abuse, with child issues, with spousal problems. I mean, it's just incredible. And, and those people really need help. And this is the sort of thing that can really help them. I really believe that. That seems like a brilliant service, by the way. Just a hell of a goddamn idea. Yeah, it's important. This is not a, a, a crisis line. It's not a hotline. It, it, it's, it's, it's like literally getting a psychiatrist's help online. Well, as you say, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp, spelled H-E-L-P, wants you to start living a happier life today. Recent reviewers are saying things of the service like, Telona, I'm quoting now, Telona has been very understanding of my situation and has brought me to her. Her listening, advice, and insight has helped me address my issue and providing me a way to understand what I did. I greatly appreciate her professionalism and her personal touch with regards to to my counseling. That's the sort of reviews and reaction it's getting. Your therapeutic match is important. And a better help, you can easily change counselors until you find the perfect fit. Better help can get you communicating with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you can log in to your account anytime to send a message to your counselor and privacy is assured. The service is getting so popular, they're now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Visit betterhelp.com slash war room, all one word. That's betterhelp.com slash war room and join the over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. That's betterhelp.com slash war room or look for the link on our show notes. Okay, James, we have Ron Brownstein, the premier national political and national affairs reporter for The Atlantic. When Ron writes, those who care or in the know read. He is that good, Ron. Let's start where everyone starts these days. Georgia, less than three weeks away. Any early signs? Uh a lot of engagement, you know, and um, uh, obviously in an election in a state that's divided this closely, Al, I, I think it's almost impossible to predict. I mean, you know, polls aren't going to tell you uh, who is going to win in, in a state that Joe Biden, you know, won by 12,000 votes or, or something. Uh, I think you see both sides fully engaged. And I think Republicans have to be concerned about the level of internecine uh, warfare that they're experiencing. It's hard to imagine that will not have some effect. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it is also hard to imagine in a state that, you know, Democrats have not won a Senate election in Georgia since the year 2000. Now they have to win two in one day. I mean, that's a tall order. 
Ron, how are uh, the Republican senators Purdue and Leffler playing this fiasco, this feud between Donald Trump and the governor, uh, Brian Kemp down there? I mean, uh, they're trying to have it both ways. They're siding with one. And, and, and again, you touched on it, but it's hard to see how it wouldn't affect at least a few voters, particularly in places yeah. like that county. Right. Look, they are they are lashing themselves to the sinking ship. I mean, I, I, one of the of Donald Trump, uh, one of the most striking things of the entire post-election period has been Leffler and Purdue endorsing the Texas lawsuit that would have invalidated all of the votes cast in their state. I mean, it, it, it's 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 I still can't wrap my arms around it. I mean, they were basically saying that everyone who came out to vote in Georgia, your vote should be thrown away. Uh, and the legislature instead should decide who uh, uh, the state's electors uh, are cast for. Uh, that, uh, you know, and, 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 and the fact that as we speak, you know, post the Electoral College uh, vote, post Mitch McConnell, post Vladimir Putin, Purdue and Leffler still will not say that Joe Biden won the election. Uh, so obviously they are all in uh, with Trump, with the Trump, you know, bet- betting on the Trump base. Um, uh, even as the other leading Republicans in the state, the attorney general, the secretary of state have argued, uh, and, and contended that the Texas lawsuit was baseless. The the claims in it were, were, you know, made of air. Um, uh, they've continued to go down this road and, you know, I I don't think it's, it's correct, uh, to say, I, I look at them as an example of why it is not correct to say that Republicans are doing this only because they fear Donald Trump. Uh, I think so many Republicans are falling in line behind this because they have essentially been forced into or voluntarily adopted the same political strategy as Trump. They need this, you know, overwhelming turnout among non-urban uh, and non-college whites because they have accepted a political trade in which they are facing erosion, not only in the urban areas, but in the inner suburbs. And Leffler and Purdue are not only scared of what Trump uh, will do to them. They are scared of what will happen if they do not get these superheated levels of turnout uh, that Trump has shown himself in two elections capable of producing. And they're willing to do anything. Of course, they don't remind voters if they had their way with that Texas lawsuit, it also would void uh, their uh, wins on November yeah. 3. Uh, but uh, the uh, the hypocrisy is stunning. You know, I read a, I read a couple of pieces that Republicans want to nationalize this race. I mean, of course, a race is nationalized. I imagine almost every Georgia voter knows the stakes. Joe Biden was down there this week. Obama's been there. Uh, this is a race. This These are two Senate races that have more national implications than I've ever seen before. Well, let's say that every Senate race, I think, is now nationalized. I mean, we've gone through two presidential elections in which there have been a grand total in the last two elections of one state that voted differently for president and for Senate. Uh, Maine, Susan Collins winning in Maine while Joe Biden won is the only Senate candidate in either party in 2020 or 2016 uh, who won a state that voted the other way for president. Up until 2016, as you probably know, that had never happened in American history. We've never had an election where every Senate race uh, in a presidential year went the same way as the presidential result in that state. As recently as 2008, there were six split. I think the number was five or four in 2012. We were down to zero in 2016 and one in 2020. Another way of looking at it is that in two consecutive elections, Democrats have not won a single Senate seat in a state that Donald Trump carried. And, uh, you know, I wrote on election day uh, uh, in my column that it looked like Democrats were not going to win the Senate 
uh, unless Joe Biden won Iowa or North Carolina or Georgia or some combination thereof, because uh, earlier in the year, uh, there was polling showing Democrats running significantly ahead of uh, Biden in some of these states, but it was converging in the final polling. We were getting to a point where in essentially every state, uh, 90 plus percent of the voters for Trump were also saying they were voting Republican for Senate and 90 plus percent of the Democrats were saying they were voting Democratic for Senate. I mean, these are becoming quasi parliamentary elections in which, as I like to say, the color on the front of the jersey matters more than the name on the back of the jersey. Voters are really saying which party they want to see in control of the Senate. And, and that is, I think we would all agree, a bit of a headwind for Democrats in Georgia. It's not clear to me that there is yet a majority in Georgia that says we want unified Democratic control, which is why I, I, I want to not think it is inconceivable, unlikely, but not inconceivable. You have a split verdict where one of the Democrats win, probably Warnock more likely, and, and one of the Republicans win. Yeah, and that wouldn't help uh, Chuck Schumer or the Democrats very much uh, at all. James. So the, the, there's a big debate, and I'll, you know, I want you to weigh in. The people like George Packer, who I really like, and, and John Harris, who I really like, both good friends of mine, both of the thesis that as Trump walks away from the presidency, his influence and his hold on, on, on the Republican Party will diminish. Uh, where, where do you come down on that? I think uh, uh, I, I'm not as I'm not as sure that Trump diminishes, and I'm certainly not as sure that Trumpism uh, diminishes. I mean, the, you know, the, the kind of changes that, that Trump has imposed on a party tend to be self-reinforcing because he has he has uh, put such a vivid stamp, such a polarizing stamp on the identity of the Republican Party that he has driven out of the coalition. Uh, many of the voters uh, who are least comfortable with that, leaving behind a, a core that is even Trumpier uh, uh, than it was uh, in 2016. So, like, I wonder, um, you know, is there, where is the basis in the Republican coalition for a counter rebellion uh, against Trumpism? Many of the college educated white voters uh, who were most resistant to him from the beginning, he only won one third of college educated white voter, uh, college educated Republican voters, even in the 2016 primary. Many of them voted Democratic in 2018 and 2020. Uh, and if they continue to see themselves as Democrats, if Biden is successful and is able to kind of cement that identity, uh, fewer of them are going to participate in Republican primaries in 2022 and 2024, which means that you're going to have a Republican primary electorate that is even more uh, non-college, non-urban, uh, and evangelical. So uh, until we see uh, vo- uh, candidates build a coalition for a a vision of the party that is not as polarizing, that is not as kind of racially um, uh, uh, aggressive or appealing to, or, you know, resentments of elites and minorities as overtly. I'm skeptical that not only Trump's personal influence, but maybe even more importantly, his kind of model for how you win, what we've been talking about, this model that accepts decline in cities and suburbs at the price of... Um, you know, as, as the price of turbocharging the rural turn, I, I'm not sure that goes away or even or even recedes. It may it may further advance again, kind of a self-reinforcing process. Well, it's certainly on display in Georgia because the only way and it, it's, it, 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 it is a way. I mean, it's a, you would say likely I, I, I might put whatever word slightly way for 
for doing left of the wind is they have to maintain a turbocharged turnout among the rural yeah. whites. I mean, there's no other, there's no other path because the Democrats are that they're they're going to vote. I mean, that that that. Well, the other there is one that. other possibility, right? I mean, there is the 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 risk for the Democrats, and we don't know this, and it is whether there is a sliver of the of the suburban white collar voters, really of all races, but particularly white college who voted for Biden, but would not be comfortable with unified Democratic control and thus may be willing to vote for one of the Republican senators to prevent that. We're not going to know that until we see it. Although we, it is worth pointing out that Purdue lost Cobb and Gwinnett by considerably smaller margin than yeah. Trump did, which suggests there were really some voters who are making some version of that calculation. There's a uh, academic Charles Bullock is an academic at the University yeah. of Georgia. He's got a piece that Trump actually ran behind uh, the other Republicans. Yeah, he did. And it, but you know, not by a lot. You know, right. when you go through it, it it's you think there ain't a lot of gruel there, but it, it, it's true. It, it, but I think the turnout model is is I would be surprised if it if it totally replicates the the turnout Ooh. model in. in, in November election. So there's going to be some yeah, distortion. The hard part, you know, as, as Al was alluding to before, I mean, is it possible that this level of open conflict between the governor, the secretary of state, and the attorney general on one side, and Trump and the two Senate candidates and Doug Collins and the QAnon lady on the other will have no effect on Republican turnout? Uh, if, 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 if so much of the party is absorbing the message that your vote was stolen, you know, the vote was stolen, your vote didn't matter. It's just hard to believe that won't, won't affect it at all. But, you know, Trump has shown he can turn out his America. Uh, and, you know, two elections in a row, he turned out more of them than almost anybody expected. Yeah, I, I think Trump thinks it's in his interest for the Republicans to lose those two seats. Huh. Because I think he wants to say, you see, without me, go ahead, try it without me. You're going to lose everything. I, mm -hmm. I think in his convoluted mind, and he's already, he's tweeting out, you know, that, that Brian Kemp is going to drag Kelly and David down with him. He, he, he so is into that narrative and he's so crazy and he so, he so doesn't give a crap yeah. about the Republican Party and Mitch McConnell. That's the last thing in the world he cares about. I, 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 I I think he would like to see them lose. That's just my interesting. Uh, people have argued that that a a Democrat unified Democratic control that is actually able to advance some of the things that Biden ran on, as opposed to having a very constricted agenda, might even be more in Trump's interest uh, to run against if he wants to run again. I mean, I personally, I don't know about you, I'm personally skeptical that in the end Trump actually does run again. I mean, I think he will dangle the possibility until the last possible moment. James will very much remember Mario Cuomo having the plane chartered oh, yeah. on, oh, God, on the God. runway in Albany on the last day for New Hampshire in 1991. Uh, but, what's that? It was in December. It was in December, yeah. And, you know, I can imagine Trump going down to that wire, but I, Again, I'll believe it when I see it that he actually, you know, puts himself through this again. Uh, but I do think he's going to dangle the possibility for a very long time. And well, John, I would just tell you there's one difference between money. Mario Cuomo and Donald Trump. <laughs> Mario Cuomo was a genuine political hamlet. Donald Trump, it's a money scam. I mean, as long as he's making money. Uh, and I tend to agree with you. At, he, I don't. I look at him now. He's obese. He's going to be 78. Uh, then I don't think he's going to run, but who knows? You know, look, I think he's been a lousy president. I think he's been a lousy political leader, as James and you were saying, doesn't care about anybody else but himself. 
But, you know, he's actually leaving the party and what yeah. on the surface looks like pretty decent shape. They're probably will stay in control of the Senate if they, they will, if they win one of those seats. They're within striking distance of taking over the House in two years. They control almost all the important redistricting decisions. The party hadn't really paid any price for Trump. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I agree. Basically, I mean, what Trump has done is, you know, shifted the axis, right, of of uh, our politics. And we were already shifting in this direction, but he kind of pushed it further. And, you know, it is it is this, what I believe is this dividing line between the voters and the places that are comfortable with the way America is changing demographically, culturally, and economically, and those uh, who are not. I call it the coalition of transformation and the coalition of restoration. And what he has shown is the capacity both to uh, generate enormous turnout in the kind of the coalition of restoration in non-urban uh, uh, and particularly non-college uh, America. And even in this election, Al, as you know, to make some gains, uh, particularly among men, you know, Hispanic and African-American men who yep. respond to elements of his cultural message and kind of, you know, they are blue, they are non-college working guys too. And, uh, uh, they, you know, they are, they are coming around to it, but, but you can't, you can't ignore the other side of the ledger, which is that, you know, under Trump, the Republican party is being systematically exiled from the places that are growing the fastest. Um, uh, you know, the big metros that are driving the economy, uh, Joe Biden, the counties that Joe Biden won accounted for 71% of the total GDP this time, uh, even more than the 64% that Hillary Clinton won. Uh, if you look at, you know, obviously, what's happening in Atlanta is, is, and its suburbs is a clear example, but even Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, and their inner suburbs, uh, uh, Texas, there was a big misfire for Democrats in the, in the Valley with Hispanics. And, and that's clearly an issue that they are going to have to address, but the Metro movement there was pretty substantial. I mean, Joe Biden won the five big urban counties by over 900,000 votes. I mean, that is a, um, kind of like a, foundation from which to contest it in the future. So, you know, Trump, yeah, Trump has shown the ability really to, to, to lower what you could call a red curtain over non-urban America in which they have almost completely exiled the Democrats. And that creates real problems in the House. It creates real problems uh, in the Senate. But the other side is true, too, which is that the Democrats are consolidating their hold on the metros, which are growing. And by and large, you know, even with this erosion among Hispanics and African-Americans, they're still winning, you know, two thirds or more of, of many of the groups that are growing in society. They're up to like over three fifths of, you know, millennials and, and Gen yeah. Z, and they're still at two thirds among voters of color. So uh, I wouldn't say it's a complete picture of health, but it is one in which there is, look, if you're dominating non-college white voters who are important everywhere to the extent that Republicans are, you're going to be competitive in a lot of places. Well, I, I mean, to go to your point, there was a lot of speculation ahead of time about Joe Biden in Pennsylvania, native of Scranton, working yeah. class Joe, do a lot better than Hillary in Western Pennsylvania, North, Northeast. He really didn't. I mean, he didn't marginally yeah. better. Marginally, counties, right? Just a little bit. Pennsylvania you know, because of that massive problem. vote that he turned out in those four Philadelphia suburbs, which used to be, well, not only was it the heart of Eisenhower country, it was the heart of George H.W. Bush country, just, yeah. you know, 30 well, years even, ago. Uh, but he, that's what delivered Pennsylvania. He uh, won those four counties by more than Biden. double the margin. Yeah. yeah. How Sorry, do you think Jane. Biden's doing so far, Ron? I don't think we, uh, I don't think the pudding has a, has a theme yet. I mean, I, I don't think you can get a full, I mean, his cabinet has been artful in the sense that it has avoided 
you know, truly alienating any faction in the party. He's found a lot of people uh, uh, who are acceptable, uh, uh, but I, I, he hasn't really produced a lot of vivid figures yet. And I think he hasn't really tipped his hand about what kind of presidency this is going to be. Is it one that is going to aggressively challenge the bound, boundaries of, of executive power and try to confront Republicans on a regular basis? Is it one that is mostly going to try to uh, conciliate and work with Republicans? I thought, Al, the, the speech he gave, uh, and James, the speech he gave um, uh, after the Electoral College certified his victory on Monday perfectly encapsulated uh, the strategic choice he faced and left us, you know, um, uh, un unclear about his ultimate resolution in that the first half of the speech, he called out the radicalism of what Republicans have been doing since the election much more explicitly than he has it ever before. As, as you know, I mean, up until that speech, he has basically kind of shrugged it off. Their goal has been to project inevitability and to kind of almost laugh off what Trump was doing, even as more and more Republican House members and attorneys general and people like Purdue and Leffler uh, uh, have endorsed it. So in the first half, he, I think, painted a much starker picture of what he is facing in the modern Republican Party. And then he immediately pivoted in the second half and just said, but it's time to turn the page and we can work together. And it left me thinking, okay, is the Republican Party that he described in the first half of the speech really interested in the kind of cooperation that he called for in the second half of the speech? And I feel like that question, we don't know the answer. I suspect the answer is less than more. Um, and, and I feel like his cabinet kind of holds in abeyance the same question as well. I don't think it gives us a clear signal of what kind of presidency he intends. Maybe that's the signal that there isn't going to be, you know, a, 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 a sharp delineation. It's going to be a little bit of cooperation and a little bit of confrontation. James. Yeah, I will. But yeah, I'd add if you get the two Georgia seats, it it it, it changes quite a bit. Mm -hmm. You, I, I, did I correct that I read you after the election that you expect skepticism that any other Democrat but Joe Biden could have beaten Trump in this cycle? Did I remember that correctly? Yes. Yeah. I yes. Yeah. I am. I was skeptical. I mean, I think for for the point that Al that Al raised, which is that Joe Biden, Scranton Joe, middle class Joe, seventy eight year old white Catholic. If he was only able to claw back this limited success among non-college and mid-sized industrial cities, uh, non-college whites and mid-sized industrial cities, uh, you know, if he was barely able to win Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, Michigan's in a slightly different category. Do I think that Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders or any of the others could have won Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. I'm pretty dubious. Um, you know, the, the magnetic pull of Trump for those kinds of voters is really, really powerful. And even with all of the assets that Biden has culturally, he was just able to do slightly better in Green Bay and slightly better in Erie and Scranton and, you know, no worse in Beaver and Westmoreland. I wonder if anybody else could have done it. And then if they could not have done that, you're left with, I think, the, you know, what it, Biden only delays the question that if you couldn't have done that, you would have had to have flipped more of the Sun Belt in order to make this work. I mean, Biden did important work on that front in, in, in taking Arizona and Georgia, albeit in Arizona by a much narrower margin than I think I expected or most people expected. Um, but, you know, you, you're going to have to start winning North Carolina. Uh, as well, um, if you're if you're not going to be able to win Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and maybe uh, uh, maybe um, 
you know, eventually Texas or, or Florida. And that's just not there yet. I mean, that, that, you know, that's kind of, that's why I thought he may have been the only one who was able to hold those Rust Belt states uh, while the Sun Belt states continue to evolve in a direction toward the Democrats, given their underlying demographic changes, a majority of the under 18 population in almost all of these states are kids of color. Uh, the majority of the kids, you know, turning 18 every year are kids of color by now. So every four year, those places get a little better. Uh, but obviously, Texas is not quite ripe yet. Um, and North Carolina is still really hard. Uh, for Democrats. So uh, uh, Biden may be the only person to hold on to Michigan and Pennsylvania. And for that reason, let's see how these four years go. But you could imagine a lot of pressure on him to run again at 82 in 2024 right. with Democrats uncertain that whether it's Kamala Harris or Buttigieg or any of them can really pull together the same coalition that Biden did. Well, you brought up my next question. All right. And this is fool's folly, but because it's you and probably no one else could tackle this. But let's assume it's 2024, and let's assume that, that Biden is a one-term president. Uh, what, it, what kind of candidate do you think that the Democrats would have to nominate if not Joe Biden? Well, it, it goes back to the same choice as, uh, as, as in 2020. I mean, do you try to reassure enough center-right white voters uh, that the Democrats are an acceptable alternative, uh, that uh, who, voters who may have been Republicans previously but are uneasy with the modern definition of the Republican Party, or do you go all in on trying to mobilize the new coalition of young people and non-white voters? Um, and obviously, if you nominate Harris uh, in 2024, who would be the front runner as the vice president, presumably he's a successful presidency, um, even if it's not, you know, um, uh, uh, then you're betting almost entirely on the latter because it's, it, you know, uh, I think if you look at Biden's number among non-college whites uh, in, Mil in uh, uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, it's hard to imagine Harris wouldn't give away a couple more points on that front. So you're, you're betting that you can win Arizona and Georgia. They're not nice to haves in a Harris uh, candidacy. They're have to haves and North Carolina may be in the same circumstance. Then if, if you don't go that way, the only, the kind of the most logical person you can imagine to be Joe Biden, if Joe Biden can't be Joe Biden is Sherrod Brown. Um, uh, but that might be a very hard nomination to win for Sherrod Brown, uh, against, uh, you know, say Kamala Harris. Um, uh, so that's, it's the same choice. You know, eventually I do think the Democrats will get to the point where the generational transformation or, or replacement will be sufficient. You can put all of your chips on tipping Arizona, tipping Georgia, tipping North Carolina, maybe tipping Texas. But I'm not sure by 2024 they'll be there. Yeah, you know, that, that I think one of the main reasons that Biden got nominated is just the winnability. Right? Pete, the, I mean, that was a huge issue in the 2020 Democratic primary. Yes. Right? Yes. When, when yep. Warren came out for Medicare for All, it, it, it killed her. Not that Democrats were against Medicare for All necessarily, but they had determined, I think, correctly that he was a stone-ass loser in a general election and they couldn't go with it. Yeah, that, look, I, I, that was a factor. It was a huge factor. Yeah, and you can't, right? I mean, you can't, um, uh, I think Democrats are not going to come, Democrats are going to come out of this election chasing, not, you know, th this felt like more like a, a stay of execution than a, a kind of resounding, even though Biden won by 7 million votes, I think many Democrats were <laughs> shocked 
at the at the extent of the audience for Trumpism. And by the way, uh, you know, the House results are very interesting in this regard, uh, because, you know, if you look at the seats, with the exception of, of the seats in Orange County, maybe, uh, if you look at the seats that Democrats lost in the House, I, there weren't many shocks in there. I mean, there, those were di- those were districts that were very pro-Trump districts. The Democrats won in eighteen. That obviously were going to be hard to hold with Trump himself on the ballot. The shock was that the suburban wave that rolled through twenty eighteen didn't keep rolling into new terrain. I mean, you know, they thought Democrats thought they would offset those losses by winning uh, Indiana five and Missouri two and the open seats around um, Houston and Dallas and Chip Royce yeah. outside of Austin. They didn't. And those were not necessarily Trump Republican districts. Those are just kind of ancestrally Republican suburban districts. And it kind of suggests, I mean, the, the challenge for Democrats, I think, is that if this is high tide, you know, a 7 million vote popular vote win that gets you over 50%, if this is high tide and this is, and that is all of the terrain that the water covers, uh, it's not enough for a stable Majority. I mean, Biden did win probably 222 or 223 House districts, which is better than Clinton or Obama did while winning the popular vote and is a reflection of the way Democrats are competing in more white collar suburban seats, particularly across the Sun Belt. But 223 is not a huge number. And, you know, there are roughly as many Republic, there are roughly as many Democrats in Trump districts as there are Republicans in Biden districts. And it wasn't that there was a huge disparity or differential in the split ticket balloting, it was that even while winning 51%, the water didn't cover that many house districts. And so at some level, despite what I said before about the democratic dominance of, of the metros, which is solidifying and is, is critical, uh, the party does have to figure out how to put a few more small town, rural type places in play. I mean, giving all, I mean, I, you know, on the, the question they used to ask in the seventies, Al, you remember when they were having all the salt hearings, and you know, would you trade the republic? You know, would you trade the American arsenal for the Russian arsenal, straight yep. up? Um, on balance, you would take the Democrats' hand, uh, I think, going into the twenty twenties, uh, because the, the places that, and groups they are strong with are growing. But it's not like a dominant hand in in that if you if you're if you're letting Republicans drop this red curtain over every place that's, you know, more than 30 miles from a city center or, you know, as David Wasserman would say, every place with a cracker barrel in it, every county with a cracker barrel in it, um, you just leave yourself a very narrow margin for error in the House and the Electoral College and and the Senate becomes almost impossible. Right. No, I, I, I agree. I think the optimism that some Democrats had just a few years ago, that even with Trump, that the demographics were working so much in their favor that, that yeah, that Clinton wasn't a great candidate, the Russians interfered, but the future was theirs. I think they're less optimistic today than they were just several years ago. And that's because yeah. of the results that you just alluded to. But one yeah. good thing we know I, is that uh, it is, while it's confusing, we'll have Ron Brownstein around to clarify yeah. it. Ron, if not sooner, I hope you'll come on when your book comes out. Oh, Absolutely. We, we, we will rock me on the water together, I hope, in 2021. We, we will do that. Thank you. Uh, hug to your wife. Be safe. And um, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you, you Thank you. Hey, and now, James, one of our favorite segments of this show, the questions from our really smart listeners from all over the globe. 
They are really good. It's hard to choose which ones to do, but we love this segment. And James, I want to start with Nigel from Plymouth in the UK. So Nigel says, I used to think that America's situation was analogous to that of the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, increasingly, I think you are more like the Weimar Republic, being battered by big lies before authoritarian authoritarianism takes over. Which historical period do you think best describes the situation in the body politic that America finds itself in? Uh, probably 1859. I, the, the only that, you know, we're not shooting each other. And the, 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 of course, there is a brilliant Tom Etzel piece in the New York Times online edition about political sectarianism. And Tom says, political scientists make the point that there are three core ingredients. Othering, the tendency to view opposing parties as essentially different or alien, aversion to dislike and distrust partisans and moralization. Right? But, but what, what Tom, but this is not, but, but because these are problems, it, the tendency of both-siderism, yeah, they are moralistic Democrats, that that think that, that and it's a problem for the Democratic Party, but it's not nearly a problem among Democrats that it is among the, the right. Trump people. Not nearly, and, and we got to be careful to like point point that out. But I, I, the, the country is you got seventy percent of one political party that doesn't accept an election. I I, I don't know. It just you know you look the Ted Cruz is a perfect example of the modern United States. And Ted Cruz is good. He went to Princeton and Harvard Law School, and he's a learned man. Well, I mean, a lot of these guys did. Uh, I mean, Tom Cotton, uh, Josh Hawley, um, uh, and they're just uh, they're responding to the Trumpification of this party. Uh, the second question, we had Tom in New York said uh, that he was listening to a, a show I did, the Clayton show, uh, in which I said that Joe Biden was nostalgic for a Senate that doesn't exist anymore. And the question that Tom asked is, if that's the case, how does he adjust to this reality and thread the needle to get things done? Well, first answer I'd give is depends on Georgia. Uh, If there's 50 votes in the Senate, you know, he's going to have to thread a lot of needles. Um, You know, Joe Manchin and um, um, Christian Sinema, who are moderately conservative Democrats, will be in the driver's seat a lot better than Mitch McConnell. And I do think, though, that the president-elect thinks of the Senate as a place to get things done, which it was for most of his time there. It's different today. There may be a few things that will be in Mitch's interest, but let's understand Mitch will always put power and party and staying in his position uh, ahead of any national interest. And that's different than Howard Baker and Bob Dole, as partisan as they could be. Yeah. By the way, on the point about the difference between the difference Georgia makes, I highly recommend a, a short piece by John Chait, who is, you know, I, th- I follow him religiously, in New York Magazine that lays out how much difference it, what the real difference is. And you're exactly right. It's, it's what can you can bring to the floor, and you can't. If you right. just pick up one of those seats, you can't get anything to the floor. Right. All right. You get me. Yeah. Even you, you, you can't. You couldn't bring. If you have those seats, at least you can bring the Supreme Court nomination to the floor. Right. And and people have to. You know. You're 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 exactly right. And and Chate amplifies your point, And it's worth our listeners reading that and understanding why Al Hunt 
it's it's so believes that Georgia is much more than having a 50-50 Senate. It, it, the consequences and the ramifications of this are, are, are unbelievable. And to Joe Biden, they're unbelievable. So uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, James, that point is so right. Uh, just two reminders. Number one, Merrick Garland, if he got into the floor, if there'd been a vote, up and down vote, however you want to do it, would have carried with, you know, maybe 60 votes. No question he would have. McConnell wouldn't let it come to the floor. Correct. And this year, if you'd put a, if you'd put a relief stimulus package on the floor anytime June, July, or after the House passed it, after the House did their duty and acted, and you put it before the Senate, it would have passed with an easy majority, and McConnell wouldn't let it. That's what's at stake in 2021. It, it is. It, it, that's, it, it, it's worth repeating. You, not, not, you, you can't, there's all kinds of legislation that would pass if, if, you, if you let people vote on it. Yeah. But if you don't let people vote on it, it's not, it's not going anywhere. And the majority party could, controls what gets there. So it, it's, it's worth repeating. We got a good question from Charles. I have a criticism of Charles. He doesn't tell us where he's from. I want to ask everyone to please tell us where they're from if they yeah. don't mind. But Charles asked a good question. He says, Republican Party seems to be devolving into something akin to fascism. When uh, Trump leaves office uh, and his influence over them wanes, I think that's a question mark. Will they be able to reconstitute themselves as a party that can attract, uh, you know, more more people? First of all, I, I I think it's a stretch to call the Republicans a party. Mm-hmm. I, I think that by and large they their personality cult. Now, in in it, the single thing that Republican voters want Republican office holders to do is to protect Donald Trump. That is the single most important thing to them. So the tax cuts, deregulation, you know what I mean? Pro-life yep. judges. That, that, that's not that's not what they want Trump protect. Now, now what, and of course you, they, you have Ted Cruz back, act, acting Totally like a sick fan, totally anything, because he's totally dependent on his Trump voters. And I think Trump actually wants them to lose in Georgia because he will tell them, that's where you are without me on the ballot. That's what's going to happen to you. You've you got to bring me back if you want, to, if you want power. Because these voters are not coming out unless unless I am on the ballot. And you know what? He's got a point. Yeah. He's got a point. They may be addicted to him. And when he leaves office, he can make life so miserable for them. You can't believe it. The idea that he's going to be gone, and I know George Packer says he's going to wilt away. John Harris, who I like John a lot, he's a, one of the most experienced journalists I've, I've known in my life. He thinks that that they that once he leaves, he'll go go the way of the vapors. I I, I hope that I hope I hope they're right, but I, I fear that this virus is a little more resilient than George. Yeah, I, I'm um, I I fear that uh, uh, that nightmare is going to stick with us for a while. Listen, this is uh, I, this is a good question from Pam, but it's even better because she is from Al's Head, Maine. Al's Head, oh, Maine, God. and I think it's directed more at me, James. She says she's a bit disappointed with the disparaging comments about Biden's 
appointment. This podcast has often said give Biden a break, but it didn't seem to think twice about undermining Biden's judgment about two recent appointees. What gives? I think I think we both have been really laudatory about the vast majority of his appointments. The two that I expressed reservations about first was Marsha Fudge at HUD. She's a member of the House. Nancy Pelosi may have a majority of only three or four. When someone leaves the House to take a cabinet post, there are 60 days before the next election is held. And during that days, there are going to be critical House votes. You cannot afford to lose House members. If they had picked up 10 seats and had 250 members, it wouldn't matter. But when you have a majority of only three or four or five, then every every seat you lose, even if only for two months, hurts. And the other one, it wasn't a criticism of the appointment, but I think it probably alluded to Neera Tandon, who I think is a p- person of great uh, uh, great capacity. Um, you know, uh, I one times I one time referred to her as a Sugar Ray Robinson of uh, policy walks. No one understood who Sugar Ray Robinson was showing my age, but he was the greatest fighter pound for pound that ever lived. She is a terrific policy person, but it's going to be really hard to get her confirmed. And you're going to have to use a lot of shit to do that. And I raised the question of whether it would have been better to appoint her to another post that didn't require confirmation, not critical of her on the substance at all. I don't think you have been well, critical generally of the appointments either, James. I, I think, yeah, but you know, you know, to some extent, she has a point. I, I mean, you know, but we have hardly been, you know, that critical. But it was a, we were talking early in the thing. You know, at some point, you got to just hook it up and say, "This is this is what we got. We're going. We're going. We're, you know, this is our starting eleven. And I, I think we're at that point now. And yes, could could you know, done different, but sure. Right, and would I preferred this and not that? Sure, but boy, on the whole, and I would tell our friend in Al's head, Maine, it, you know, on not on the whole, overwhelmingly, it not only is this team, a, a, I don't know, in a stellar galaxy leap from what we have, but compared to other cabinets, recent cabinets, the, the Obama cabinet, the Clinton cabinet, and, you know, the George H.W. Bush cabinet in many instances, it, it, it is as good or better. Yeah, it really is. And more diverse and, uh, and, and ready. Now, they're not, you know, someone, I guess it was David Ignatius said, they're not a lot of bold thinkers. Well, there may not be, but you know something at this time, I think we need to be you know, steady as you go. I think we need to go and we need some calm. But uh, So no, a, a good friend of mine right. who, who is really smart, uh, I'm not going to mention the name because it's a private conversation, but saying, you know, it's just a so faces. It's not a, you know, it's a fresh face. And I said, Biden didn't run as a fresh face. Right. He didn't say, I'm, 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 we summon a new generation to, to challenges of, of 20 years now. He did not <laughs> run as that. Right. Kind of hard to do that what, when you've been it, in politics for 48 years and you're I, 77 I, years I, old, but you're yeah, absolutely, you're, you know, it, you're, it, you're, it, right. you're absolutely it, right. It, 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 he didn't run as a fresh thinker. Right. Right. He really didn't. His, his appointments, I, I think, reflect him, reflect his campaign. You know, Patricia in Chicago, who really liked Tim O'Brien and John Barry last week, and she paid special attention, James, to your on-point critique of Democratic messaging. And this morning she said, I listened, I heard John Kerry on NPR with a delivery, and I'm quoting Patricia, like Herman Munster, nothing inspiring, even though his job is important and he's very good. 
who's helping Democrats with communications? They need help. Yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, I really like Senator Kerry, uh, but well, Secretary Kerry, but but uh, he's not a he has a kind of a one pitch, and he he's given to flowery language from time to time. I think that's a fair observation. Uh, you know what he did on that Iran nuclear deal. Uh, the the plum we said it went into that. In but in one of the great things is. Uh, uh, it was a report where if you injury, uh, it really knows this stuff. She came to my two-lane class. She was at Bloomberg. Yeah, and he really, and, he really clears about climate. I, I admit sometimes the messaging isn't great, but right. and, and, a choice and, and, between uh, – you're, 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 you're right on that. You're, you're right on that. And they, they, you know, they have a really talented communications team by everybody's estimation, and I hope that they have an enforcer calls the cabinet people in and says, look, I saw you on Face the Nation uh, or something. I saw you this. I, I think you can reframe this. I, I think they need some some real, real message discipline. Right. And the only place that can come out of and be effective is out of the White House communication shop. Well, Jen and Psaki they, is awfully good. She's the press person, and she was the State Department spokesman. She was in the Obama White House. She's, uh, you know, she's really, really quite good. And uh, I think you're right. Uh, I think that whole I, team, I mean, you know, people think it, it really good. Honolulu. I love having listeners in Honolulu. Oh, I wish well, I could I be in Honolulu. Okay. Jesus, God, I love that place. Um, John, John writes, and he says, this is, again, I think directed to me. He said, I'm absolutely wrong about Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman in Pennsylvania and the 20, uh, 2022 Pennsylvania U.S. Senate rate. He's what we need in a state like Pennsylvania, plain spoken, authentic. I raise questions. He's a he's a self labeled democratic socialist. I I think that's a problem in a place like Pennsylvania. I don't think that's going to travel well. Maybe I'm wrong. Bernie certainly has done quite well in Vermont. Uh, I don't know Mr. Fetterman. Uh, he he's he's lieutenant governor, but uh, uh, he hasn't won big races. He's a former mayor, and maybe that message really will be great in 2022. But it worries me a little bit, and I don't know him. Well, it didn't work too well in 2020, right? Right. So, I, but maybe things are changing in 2022. But uh, you know, and maybe it, he's the one that's capable of delivering whatever well, that there's, message there's is. A, there's, a, there's like a a lot of Democratic talent in Pennsylvania. Yeah. A lot. That I was really impressive. I don't this guy uh, Kenyatta. This the congressman from from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's good. He's really good. I mean, that there's up and down. You know, you and I have always you're from Pennsylvania and. It's a kind of an ongoing conversation about how Pennsylvania, the state of its importance and size, has not produced that much political talent throughout history. I think that there is a a a lot a lot around right now. A lot, there's a lot of Democratic talent in Pennsylvania, and I'm, yeah. I'm not sure that Mr. Fetterman is at the top of that heap, but. Well, they've produced some really good political figures, including the current United States Senator Bob Casey. And what I had have said for a long time is they never, though, have produced a really prominent national politician, a presidential contender, a major right. national figure uh, for a state that size. And you look at a place like Arkansas, which has produced uh, three or four and other states. But, you know, maybe that's changing because they do have a lot of talent. I think it is. I, I've never seen a guy grow into an office like Senator 
Bob Casey. I mean, he, oh, he's, he's a somebody. And, yeah, and it's a really good communicator too. Yeah, yeah, you know, really good communicator. I, I'd Final like to question, see him James, is to you. It's a good one. It's Andrew, so. who's in Maryland. I don't know where, but someplace in Maryland. And he says, concerning rural America, why aren't policies such as broadband for all or a digital New Deal making headway? What do you think about Tom Vilsack, former Iowa governor, who's been beating this drum for rural America and its importance to politics for years about Tom Vilsack coming back? Look, you know him. I, I, I know him. He had it, people would say, hey, this guy to bring him back. So I'm just telling you, Obama thought he was the most talented cabinet member and uh, I, 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 the, the neglect of rural America is is, is something that is, it's just one of the great tragic stories I, I, I've seen and, and by the way there's a lot of non-whites that live in rural America uh, the Mississippi Delta is rural America all right so let's it, it, but but these are uh, wherever they are they're, they're our countrymen and this the, 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 the falling back in the deterioration uh, of the economic plight of rural Americans, and and also the the, the cultural deterioration that they've had, it, it's something that is producing a great deal of the angst that we see in this country. And uh, you know, I think that Bill Sack, uh, and I think other people in that cabinet can really make rural America a priority. I, I'm a child of rural America. And uh, I, I'm proud of my rural roots, and I think that, that that point is good, and I think it's one of the great under-addressed problems we have. By the way, Native Americans live mostly in rural America. You, you, you see these processing plants where you have this COVID breakdown, a lot of, that, a lot of those in rural America. Yeah. So it, it, we ought to understand that, that rural America is a very, very complex play entity and all across we, we, they, they, their incomes have just deteriorated uh, this big agribusiness is like really had a bad there are problems that I can't think that, that are so big I can't even think about them but I mean Bill Sack is the kind of guy that can make a difference yeah no I agree you know I, I generally think it's not a good idea to come back to a job you held before I would call it the Rumsfeld rule. I mean, Donald Rumsfeld came back and it was pretty close to a disaster. I think Vilsack is the exception. He's knowledgeable. He knows the issues. He articulates them well. He he will throw a lot of energy into it, and he'll certainly talk about those issues. The other issue, James, you know, we mentioned broadband and some of the agribusiness and some of the you know the poverty in those places. There, you know, you when I look at states like Georgia and Texas and North Carolina, Medicaid expansion, the lack of Medicaid expansion, only 12 states are killing those rural areas. They're closing hospitals. There are people who are dying. And it just is an issue that I think Democrats did not, they really didn't articulate it as well as they should have in those places. But there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think Vilsack can help them get started. God, I, I mean, the whole rural hospital thing is a we're going right. to do a show on that. I mean, the, 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 the crisis in health. Coming back to Biden and the cabinet, but I think really what we're looking at is well, he's just trying to stabilize the country. Right. right? It's like somebody, you know, you show up at the emergency room and you've had a heart attack. Oh, I mean, they're going to, yeah, you can, they can sit down and talk to you about your diet and your, your habits and your medication. 
but right now you just get the damn thing stabilized. Right. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Remember to email your questions to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review, and we'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning for 2021.